Hello and welcome to the Australia Indonesia Centre and our In Conversation webinar about the digital economy, which has become front and centre of our lives as the world adapts to the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Thanks for joining us. I'm Helen Brown. I acknowledge the traditional owners, the Kulin Nations of the land on which the centre's office is located and the city of Melbourne from where I'm hosting today's webinar. We pay our respects to elders past, present and future. Now, as you know, the centre's mission is to build on the links between the two countries of Indonesia and Australia, great neighbours. We bring together researchers, industry, civil society and governments to discuss some of the important issues that we are both grappling with. We are going to allow some questions, that's a bit later on, and you can put your questions forward in the chat room on your screen. It's off for the time being, but we'll let you know when that becomes available. And thanks to those who sent through our questions from our um, request yesterday from our mail out. We'll pop a few of those up a bit later in the conversation. Let's meet our guests for this webinar. Professor Caroline Chan, who is Professor of Information Systems at RMIT University. And of course, our Industry Fellow for Skills at the Australia Indonesia Centre. Evan Alex Chandra is the Head of Public Policy and Government Relations at Bukalapak. And of course, Bukalapak is one of Indonesia's unicorn companies, an e-commerce giant. Uh, that has grown on the back of the incredible shift in consumer trends online in Indonesia in the past five years. Now, before I get to them, I'd just like to remind you a little bit about this digital landscape that we're talking about. And we are going to look a bit at e-commerce um, to help us shape that landscape. I'd like to read for you something that our guest Alex Chandra wrote in a white paper he produced a couple of years ago when he looked at the entrepreneurial space between Indonesia and Australia and their digital ecosystems. So here's just a short idea of some statistics. The Asia-Pacific is expected to be the world's largest retail e-commerce market, with sales expected to top $1 trillion US dollars in 2016 and more than double to $2.725 trillion by 2020. Well past that. Expanding middle classes, greater mobile and internet penetration, growing competition of e-commerce players and improving logistics and infrastructure will all fuel e-commerce growth in the region. Now, as I said, that's uh, statistics from the white paper produced by our guest, Alex Chandra. We're going to dive into that a little bit more with him. It is, of course, not just about e-commerce, but with the take-up of digital being accelerated due to the coronavirus pandemic, um, and that's because solutions are being sought for new problems or solutions are being sought for existing problems where change is clearly needed. You know, we've got a problem, we've had it for a while, we think we need a digital solution or to change our digital behaviour, and now we really have to do it. The e-commerce space, while not just a part of that um, landscape, does tell us a lot about consumer behaviour and trends that will shape the digital economy in the years to come. And of course, also it tells us about the kinds of knowledge, skills and training that will be required. So uh, what I've asked our two guests to do for a start is just paint us a short picture 
of where they see the situation at now. And that will help us to springboard onto our question and answer session. And uh, Professor Chan, if we could start with you, please, first. Thank you, Helen. And I'm delighted to be invited for this um, session. So thanks so much for that. Now, um, let's see, um, where do I start? So Indonesia has um, around 100 million of mobile phone users and probably over 200, between 200 and 300 of um, million of subscribers. And of those large numbers of users of social media like, so it's like Facebook, Instagram, and all of those. And this number of uh, users of media, they're growing around 15 to 20% a year. So it's a big number and it's making it the fourth largest social media users in the world. So, and most of these users, they access internet through their mobile phones. However, though, the e-commerce technology uptake, e-commerce related technology uptake still have low penetration rate. Say, for example, if you're looking at the uptake of the card payment systems, Indonesia still have around 10% compared to say the Malaysia that have about 30% and Singapore over 60% and probably Australia over 90%. So saying this, Indonesia has had a rapid increase in terms of domestic online shopping as we know. And, um, and the engagement of small business in e-marketplace as well. So sometimes we call it warung in Indonesia or we call it probably milk bars in <laughs> in Australia, and um, it's accounted of a three and a half million. And of these, many of those are members of e-marketplace like Bukalapak, who has probably about 1.3 million. Alex can talk about that. And, um, but looking at the digital trade, however, which is the e-commerce of cross-border, there are very small number of percentage of these small business have had a go. Key platforms such as in the ASEAN market, like uh, Lazada, Shopee, Salora, they only have very small percentage of, um, of Indonesian's small retailers there. Nevertheless, innovative services in domestic market are flourishing, as you can see, you can hear before from Helen, like the Gojek and all of the ad techs, you know, for these um, companies and all of those things. And during pandemic, as you know, many countries are experiencing online business booming. And this is going to be the new normal. And um, how can then we take this no new normal of digital economy into the next stage? I think there are four things that we can think about. So first, probably um, in any digital transformation, we need to remember that we must put people in the center. And this is the most important aspect of digital transformation, which often is for, forgotten. But getting them engaged and provide knowledge and skills for them to participate, that's a critical one. I remember I was in Indonesia with my sister where we're going to do some shopping. When she was shopping, she asked her driver to take some cash for her from ATM. She conveniently provided him with an ATM card and her PIN number to withdraw some cash. And I was kind of like, oh, probably she just did it because she knows this guy for many, many years and then also just doing it for this guy. But as I observed, it wasn't just him and also it wasn't just her. It's, um, this happened in all sort of situation. For example, when you don't have access in the internet in the new place, someone will kindly jump into you 
and help you access the internet using their username and password. And that's, that's quite normal over there. So while it's probably normal over there, probably this is something to do that um, we need to be a bit more aware of the cybersecurity. So knowledge and skill development, building people capacity and capability will lead to a better community understanding and especially businesses, which will have the biggest impact on the transformation. And secondly, it's about building the infrastructure. So there are unevenness about access to the internet in Indonesia, probably in the large um, city like Jakarta, Bandung, Surabaya, probably we don't have that. But once we go to regional area, it can be quite difficult to get access or to get what I say, reliable access to the internet. So, and, um, and the third one I think is something that we need to think about inclusiveness. But how can we be inclusive in terms of getting participants to be part of this digital economy? There are still many people probably that are not having access into digital economy, especially things like women who's working in the craft and art, for example, like the batik artisan. You know, batik is very popular in Indonesia. But um, if you're looking at batik artisans, they are mainly done by women and um, in a very small family business, which have very little literacy, let alone digital literacy. So, and finally, of course, the governance and regulations that is critical. And Indonesia has been uh, addressing that. The data protection law is getting there, but need to be accelerated. So probably that's four things. So where is the role of Australia here? Looking at this four aspect of it. I can, I can, I believe we can play a role in all of this in different ways. And the e-commerce aid for trade project, which AIC is leading at the moment, for example, that's a focus on building e-commerce capacity and capability. And um, to enable them to integrate with the region especially the ASEAN region. There is no question digital technology will become the way Australia, Indonesia, and many other countries to do business. And improving cybersecurity awareness and provide small business with knowledge and skill to protect their system, mitigate the cyber risk, response and managing this risk will be one of the major requirements to be able to do this um, trading or e-business um, activities. So there are things we look at making impact, which will no doubt benefit both Australia and Indonesia for many, many years. So probably I have that as a conclusion. <laughs> That's Thank great. You. Thanks so much, Caroline. I feel like uh, I can see why you're such a good teacher. I've taken notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, on all of that. Very interesting. And you mentioned the data protection law and policy is, of course, a very strong area for Alex Chandra, our next guest. And, and we will talk about policy, Alex, but I'll just ask you for your opening remarks at this stage, please. Okay. Um, I have a slide, actually, uh, for uh, this one, uh, so we, we could uh, understand it uh, a bit more clearer. So this is what happened in Indonesia during March uh, till April. 
So as you can see, uh, our users are actually uh, have a different attitude uh, towards the pandemic uh, on March and April. And this might be something that uh, all of you need needs to uh, take a good concern. Uh, users' behavior are changing every single month. I repeat, uh, our users' uh, attitude uh, uh, changes every single month. So on March, they usually buy something related to so hand sanitizer, disinfectant medicine, basically related to their health. On the April, uh, when the work from home uh, are fully implemented in Indonesia, they're buying office productivity software, games and console and hobbies. So uh, the Jakartans, uh, people living in Jakarta usually uh, spend like hours uh, to commute. Now they have uh, quite enough hour uh, to, to do their hobbies. So I guess a lot of uh, you also experience the same, uh, more time for your hobbies. So people are starting uh, to buy new plants, uh, starting to buy uh, uh, things that related to their hobbies. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, Tim, could you help me out? Hello? Coming. Uh, okay. And this is uh, what uh, we experience also. So the consumer interest, basically, uh, the consumer have a different lifestyle right now uh, pe when people usually buy uh, jewelries or uh, any party related items. Now they're basically uh, focusing on buying their uh, necessities. Uh, even let's say they also buy uh, things that relate to their hobbies also. And new user goes. Uh, there are uh, lots of new user growth also in our platform uh, simply because uh, the people are realizing that they cannot simply as simple as going to the uh, mall right now. So they need uh, to get their goods online. And uh, the seller also goes online also. Uh, because they know if they don't go online, they will basically uh, get shut down by this virus. So that's why there are so many uh, SMEs finally move uh, to online channel. And it's also being boosted by the government. So we have this program, Bangga Buatan Indonesia, which literally uh, translated to proud using Indonesians. Um, so the government are also preparing incentive for the seller and for the buyer to buy and sell their goods, so the economy in Indonesia uh, could uh, run uh, once more. Uh, next slide, please. Tim, okay. This is uh, what happened uh, in uh, the US on the right part. And how do we adapt? We basically, uh, at least in Indonesia, right? Uh, we increase in daily, uh, basic daily needs and health products and there is a stagnant growth in non-primary product uh, categories such as fashion and electronics. But uh, especially for the fashions that uh, related uh, to partying. So uh, laser wear is a common trend also in Indonesia right now. Uh, face masks also. Mm. Uh, on electronics, uh, since 
this pandemic uh, quite increase uh, the the price because there is uh, some difficulties in uh, logistics, and there then the people might think that uh, this is not the right time to buy uh, electronics, so they kind of hold their uh, money uh, to buy new electronics. So I guess that's that uh, in a glimpse of what is currently happening uh, in, in Indonesia and a little bit uh, part of the world. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Alex. And you mentioned that users' behavior is changing every single month, um, yes. which in Indonesia is astounding. Did you, astounding because of the size of that change, what it actually means. Were you surprised yourself by that? I guess I'm not that uh, very surprised because uh, I mean, I'm in a way or another, I'm a consumer also, right? So let's say uh, for uh, for in January, February and March, basically people are panicking. Are uh, Indonesia will experience the same like uh, the rest of the world when there is no stock. Uh, that's why uh, on January, February, March, people usually kept their money in their banks and also keep uh, their cash uh, on hands be, because uh, they really they're uh, they they think that uh, if this uh, thing getting worse, unfortunately the, it doesn't. Uh, there might be some chaos, uh, some uh, that uh, might occur. So that's why in January, February, March, uh, people are uh, keeping cash on their hands. Well, on April. Uh, since uh, the government are take uh, Indonesia are take an, uh, a more proactive uh, approach and more aggressive approach, uh, and basically enforce everyone to work from home. Uh, that's why, uh, and the economy is getting better. That's why uh, the the consumer are also buying uh, new goods. Also, while while still buying. Um, health-related products like disinfectant and uh, medicines, uh, but and vitamins. But they also now buy uh, other products like uh, productivity uh, goods or any hobby-related uh, products. Mm. And then, given that demand, what were you seeing at Bukalapak with the uptake of uh, small business or medium business to online channels? Uh, pardon, could you repeat the questions? Uh, what did you, yeah, what kind of uptake did you see from small business that perhaps hadn't been using an online channel before? Um, Book a lot, I understand there may be information you, you don't have to hand, but mm -hmm. was there a surge in the small businesses using an online channel such as the Bukalapak or the Tokopedia, for instance, or going onto their Instagram and creating... Um, a an account that they could sell from. Definitely. Uh, so this uh, the president actually have a program for our for the uh, e-commerce players. The president are expecting to have uh, two million online sellers, SME online sellers, by the end of this year. So they are basically uh, the government are pushing the numbers. So they give uh, a lot of incentive uh, for the buyer and the seller. And uh, uh, online platform also do uh, lots of webinars to onboard uh, new users. Great, thanks, Alex. And you talked about SMEs, Caroline Chan. If I can go to you, 
the program that you're specifically working on, that's more for MSMEs, that, that quite micro business that might also be looking to go online. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So most of the SME or small businesses now, they go online through different ways. So they can put their product in the Instagram or they use the Facebook or they have their own little website or most of them actually participate in a company like uh, Alex mentioned, the Bukalapak, where he came from. And in fact, Alex Alex been very modest there because his company, for example, has um, one point, probably 1.3 million of the small business participate in the e-commerce. So it's quite a huge uh, community of some small businesses there. And um, especially if you're looking at Indonesia, you know, 99% of the small of the businesses are small business and they are the one who got most affected by this uh, pandemic. And the program that I'm talking about, I mentioned before, it's very much integrating, trying to facilitate, you know, the integration of the Indo-Pacific countries by building their capability and the capacity of the small business so they can be participant in the global market. In particular for this program, for example, it's, um, we, we see the really big growth in e-commerce, uh, small business, and generally in the digital economy in Indonesia. You would have noticed there are probably six unicorns now in Indonesia, you know, the past, just for the past few years. So that's actually, you know, with probably Singapore who only have four and Australia who only ha- which only has two. So that's a huge increase in the uptake of digital economy. And, um, but unfortunately, they are not quite a company, but by cybersecurity awareness, which is a very critical part, you know, especially for the digital economy and um, data and all of those things. And the cybersecurity element is one that you're particularly focusing on, Caroline Chan, um, and I want to talk to you a bit more about that. But Alex, just checking in with you, and we've had these conversations before around the notion of privacy and protecting data in Indonesia. Um, what do you think the general level of knowledge is about keeping your information private or, or wanting it to be kept private? Not very much, I guess. Uh, so if you see at Google and type KTP, KTNP, which is basically uh, our names or uh, our personal ID, you could uh, see it uh, that there are lots of uh, IDs uh, there in the Google image. So there is no such thing as a privacy culture yet. Uh, so another example, if you want to go uh, to enter uh, a building in Indonesia, you basically have to submit your ID and uh, before you enter a, a building. There is also a case where the one of the employees of the building management actually scan the uh, IDs and then sell it. So there is a big problem on the privacy uh, sector also. We haven't got that uh, culture yet, but the government are currently preparing uh, some regulations uh, concerning data privacy. They are preparing data privacy uh, act, but there is also a uh, minister regulation number 20 year 2006 about uh, data, privacy, uh, data privacy. There is also a 
Government Regulation Number 71 Year 2019 and Government Regulation Number 80 Year 2019 that have a bit of part that uh, says about the privacy. But I don't think it would be implemented well since because there is no privacy culture yet in Indonesia. Yeah, and it's it's that mindset. I guess it's the mindset that you're working on, um, Professor Chan. Why yeah. why try and do that with MSMEs though? Because firstly, they they the one that has very little resource and ability to you know to advance themselves. They are very limited in terms of funding. They are not able to say, for example, for large company like Bukalapak or Tokopedia, probably they have the funding to get an audit of the security system in their company and getting the ISO 27001, you know, which is the IS security kind of um, audit that is internationally recognized. But for this small company, they, they don't have that resource. They don't even have the resource to upskill themselves. So this program actually taught them basic security knowledge and skill, which aim to just increase their awareness that there are this all potentially, you know, um, security issue that they can um, they can go you can, they can get into a trouble with, you know. So it's a very practical program and allow them to not just recognizing, you know. Um, the cybersecurity attack, but also ability to detect and prepare for cybersecurity incidents, and then be able to respond to it, and then can rest and can recover from that sort of attack. So I think it's um yeah it's that's why we kind of pick on the small and medium businesses. Mm. And I'm going to go to a question that we've had come in from someone RMIT University, Prem Chetri, which. I think it relates to what we've just been discussing, but takes it a bit further. How can the digital economy reduce income inequality in Indonesia? Obviously, the opportunity to go online, uh, you would suspect, does help. Um, I'm just curious to know what the both of you think. Alex, would you mind if I go to you first on that? I mean, this is obviously okay. one of the reasons why the president is keen to uh, encourage online activity and startups in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. So there are lots of uh, great stories uh, coming for our, uh, from our sellers, actually. So by going online, you could basically expand your market. So for example, the simple logic is this. If you built an offline store, the ones that will be buying your goods is around your one, one kilometers from your area of the store. Now imagine if you go online actually, you could basically serve the whole uh, archipelago in Indonesia or in, in the Australia, but the whole continent basically, the whole 25 million uh, people in Australia. So that is why the sizing is very different. One kilometer uh, from your area versus the whole archipelago in, in, in Asia. That is why uh, we, we see uh, that uh, lots of people actually being able to support themselves. However, I might uh, hear some skepticism uh, that going online also means more competitors. But but come on, uh, you will have like hundreds of million uh, people seeing your goods at least. 
and maybe uh, one or two percent uh, might be interested uh, to buy uh, your goods. Why not? I mean, that's a big number. It, yes, <laughs> it is, and that's the the value of the Indonesian marketplace, isn't it? Yeah. Is that one of the reasons, Caroline, why you're involved in this program to upskill those people who who don't have many options when it comes to income? Yeah, I actually agree with what Alex just um, just mentioned. You know, and ability to reach out, you know, to bigger market, you know, regardless. Yes, of course, more competitor. But I just want to share one example that I, I'm working with a colleague in a very small island in Indonesia called Madura. And they have a special batik artisan there. They have, you know, and their life depending very much on the tourists who come to the local town and buy that batik. With the shutdown of the COVID-19, these artisan or these small businesses they were not able to sell their product. But with a, you know, going into e-marketplace like Bukalapak or putting their uh, product on the Instagram or Facebook or whatever, that's allowed them to at, at least market that product and then they can sell their product and make them survive. So yes, there, is a, there are a lot of benefits of that. And the program that we're doing in AIC, for example, it's also... Um, with a cyber program uh, training also can improve the reputation of the company, which um, then, you know, lead to the participation for them to be able to trade globally, not just in Indonesia, because obviously you won't find Batik Madura in Malaysia, for example, or in Singapore, because they are made from the very small local town. But through this, they may be able to market that product or sell that product you know, across the, you know, over outside the country. And with this skill, we also believe that will improve the confidence of small business and they can become an exemplar as well for other small businesses. And I, we've opened the chat line in the Q&A, so please feel free to put a question in there. And we do have one from Puteri, how might digital support women's economic empowerment? And I think you've just answered that in a way. Caroline, so that's great, giving them opportunities. One thing we didn't quite cross off on um, uh, was the, the mindset around privacy and security. And, and Alex, you said it's not really there yet. Are you seeing any signs of change? And how long do you think it might take for people to understand that um, you know, privacy is important and there are, other, there are ramifications for not protecting data? Or maybe they don't worry about it. I mean, that's a reasonable response too. <laughs> I guess uh, the people are not basically have a concern on the privacy uh, in that part. So I cannot say much on how long will it take, I guess. Fair enough. It's, it's um, something, I guess, Caroline, you're going to find out more as you delve into your work with the MSMEs. And, I'll move on from that to um, another question that we have around, which uh, it taps into some of the things you were talking about before around merchants um, and the sort of trends that you're seeing. I haven't given my, my heads up on this, but we have a question from James Dehajo. Oh, other one, thanks. 
I'll leave that one till later. There we go, we're giving them a sneak peek of a question for later. If you can just pop that one down. Thanks, Tim, sorry. Um, I was curious, we, we had a question from Merchant Spring. How do you see marketplaces evolving in Indonesia from a merchant's perspective? Thank you, Tim. Sorry about that, everyone. Um, yeah, so Alex, how do you see marketplaces evolving in Indonesia from a merchant's perspective? And then Caroline, to you, I know that you're just starting work in that area, but I think you might have some insights on that as well. Hmm. I see it that uh, more people are actually uh, going online. That's the first thing. And uh, this leads to the second thing that there are more uh, products that uh, could be uh, sold by the merchants. And there are uh, some items that we normally won't see uh, if we go offline. They're also be, uh, being sold uh, and online. Uh, a few months back, people are not uh, thinking uh, to sell frozen food uh, in online. Now, since the pandemic, uh, there are more and more uh, people are actually selling uh, frozen foods, frozen foods uh, through the online uh, platform. So the market basically is uh, quite evolving. So. Usually the people only sell uh, electronics or basically uh, un, uh, unperishable goods, but now they're uh, starting to get brave and by uh, and selling more uh, more and more uh, perishable goods and they become uh, more efficient in doing so. So uh, now the merchants are be, are have the ability to pack faster and to send it uh, the goods faster so it won't be uh, perishable soon. That's great, thanks Alex. And I just want to do a quick follow-up to that. Um, can I go online direct or do I need a company in Indonesia? That's from Aaron Lucas on our q and I just thought I'd throw that in there when you're talking about everyone going online. Could you answer that, Alex? Nope, you basically don't uh, need to build a company if you want to sell uh, your goods in Bukalapak. It's basically a premium business model. So if you want uh, to put your ads in uh, Bukalapak, it's basically free and you don't have to establish a company to do so. Uh, but if you want to open some new features, well, you have to pay it uh, basically. Great, thank you. Um, Caroline, to you, just popping back to that question from James Dija. Dihajo, how do you see marketplaces evolving in Indonesia from a merchant's perspective? You're, of course, working with very small businesses, micro businesses, but you obviously see potential. You know, you talk about women in um, traditional batik making, for instance. Yeah, I actually would predict that it's going to be even stronger. There will be more competition. I think probably Alex doesn't want to hear this. But I think there may be more competition of the e-marketplaces. For example, like I, I know we know for a long time we have Etsy here in Australia and, you know, probably in the U.S. and other things. Then probably, you know, that, that sort of um, specialty of the e-marketplace might also pop up because, you know, they've been forced to go into this area because of the pandemic. So there will be a lot more people, I think, will be embracing 
or a lot more merchants will be embracing the online way of doing business. So, which I don't think is a bad thing because in another way, it's like a, another channel for them that they can sell. And in fact, the good thing is um, they're able to reach a much bigger market like um, uh, Alex was mentioning before. So I think, yes, it's going to get bigger, I would think, and uh, it's going to get, um, you know, um, different kind of business models as well that coming mm -hmm. out from that. And that will put um, quite a few competition, I would say, to, you know, to Bukalapak and other e-marketplaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've been talking about Indonesia a lot, but interestingly, Caroline Chan, we've had a couple of webinars now where it's been mentioned mm -hmm. that Australian small or SME, small to medium enterprises, mm -hmm. they're a bit slower or have been slower getting themselves online and have been scrambling in the pandemic yeah. to put themselves online because it's often the only channel mm -hmm. that people now have for shopping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. But saying that though, they, they're pretty good. Probably they're not. I, I like working with Indonesian people. Sometimes, you know, even though can be quite anxious sometimes, because when you said, I'm going to do this in two weeks time, they wouldn't do anything. I think Alex can confirm this. And then after three days before it's due, they will just do it just like that. It's magic, you know, <laughs> but um, it's um. That's how they do it. They're very agile in a way, taking up things and can turn things quickly. In Australia, everything needs to be planned. But I think so far I could see, yes, they haven't done it enough, but many, many businesses also have done it. And people also start doing that as well. Uh, Alex mentioned about, you know, selling frozen products. We do sell frozen products. We have green grocers here. We have meat delivery we have a lot of other things as well as, you know, um, we have um, daily. I never thought of, you know, buying things online in, the, in my daily. And the daily that I went didn't have online ordering until after the pandemic, you know. But saying that now I have to just um, be, I just have to think about what I buy and what, Usually when I go to Delhi, you will just look at the product. Okay, I want that, you know, but now I really have to think, what is that, you know? And I then I have to go to the Delhi and I can be a bit more, um, a bit more disciplined in my planning with my shopping, to be honest, rather than, you know, just go off. And I quite like that. So I don't know, probably that doesn't work with everybody, but yes, I quite like that. Thanks, Caroline. The other area that uh, we've touched on a little bit, but I'd like to go into a bit more is around the kinds of digital skills and knowledge that needs to be built up uh, in Australia and Indonesia um, to, to create that kind of ecosystem that we're all looking for, one that benefits everybody. Now, Alex, I'll go to you first because this is one of the things that you explored in your white paper. Um, first, it was around the different ecosystems. Can you just outline initially the differences and the similarities that you saw between both countries? So basically, I'll start with, with, the, uh, with the differences for, for, for now. So the main differences between Australia and Indonesia is basically on how they perceive their business model. So Indonesia business model is basically a C2C heavy focus. So we are very okay to, let's say, uh, only have a revenue for like a 0.1 US dollar for every users. We're very okay for that. 
that uh, and where how we basically expand it is basically by expanding our users so we're focusing on how to get more and more users uh, every single day while in the Australian part is basically they focus on the B2B uh, business side. Uh, so they prefer to have a big projects uh, from uh, the other business and then they will do, do things like that. So it's uh, have a very different mindset, which is understandable because uh, Indonesia have like 264 million uh, people right now, while Australia have like uh, 25 million uh, people right now. So my suggestion uh, for the Australian is actually, why not you go to Indonesia? We have a big market in here. <laughs> uh, it's a great idea. And uh, since uh, people are basically go online, this is the right moment for uh, Australian people to go to Indonesia. Uh, the same, what about the similarities? What I see from uh, Indonesia and Australia is basically, it's all the same like uh, the other people in the world. Uh, they love to buy goods and stuff, especially related uh, uh, to their hobbies. And people are actually developing new hobbies, I guess, uh, during this pandemic. So I guess that's that. Thanks, Alex. That's great. And Caroline, you, you've touched on the differences between Australia and Indonesia. Uh, is um, what about when it comes to developing skills and developing knowledge around digital? Have you noticed any differences? I think there are, but mind you, I think Alex mentioned it before. You know, Indonesia has a population of probably I know you know over ten times the size of Australia's population. Okay, that's one thing, and an economy half the size probably. You know, and. Um, but there is no doubt Indonesia is designed to become a much larger economic players, you know. And, um, and saying that, though, Indonesia is a lot more complex place with so many competing priorities as well. So we need to recognize there are real differences in terms of culture, value, legislation, and in terms of economy as well. And saying that as well, when we're developing skills, I think why there are differences, I think there are a lot of transferable skills that are very similar. We provide a lot of opportunity for Australia to bring what we have here, which is uh, excellent education and training to Indonesia and to provide that or to help Indonesia to grow that. For example, our vocational, for example, that's uh, an area, you know, that um, very much needed in Indonesia. And, um, and when you're looking at the future of the digital economy, you know, the future of it, we're going to deal a lot with, the, say, for example, like smart manufacturing and then the logistic and supply chain management and the use of various data and analytics. Alex will agree with me, you know, this is used a lot by e-marketplaces, including Alibaba and things like that, using the analytics and artificial intelligence and data sharing, cloud computing. And of course, cybersecurity in the supply chain is becoming more critical as well. So again, those are area that we need to build. I think there are some way similarities, but I think the level of it, which we can you know, um, have different level, different layers of those skills and level of um, skills of it. And um, yes, yeah, so I think it's, 
skills that required that is not only being able to analyze data, but also use it to making decision and cognitive skills and, you know, how to work, interact with the smart machine and technology. So those are that we need. And yes, it's, it is differences in the approaching how we're going to deliver that. And, but at the same time, there are similarity in terms of what sort of skills that we're going to require in this new global digital economy. Mm. Thanks, Caroline. Alex, I want to ask you about training and skills, but the issue of cybersecurity um, has been floating around this conversation. And some of the big companies in Indonesia have been you know, dealing with some threats to their data and trying to find ways to protect it. What um, are the, what is the biggest threat and, and what kind of skills uh, set does the country need or, you know, does a big company need to ensure that they can ward them off? Well, I guess the biggest uh, problem that we're facing right now is basically phishing uh, basically. Uh, lots of uh, Indonesian users doesn't have that digital knowledge that you don't uh, go uh, to spread your uh, one-time password, you don't uh, spread your password or uh, things like that. So people uh, in Nisha have uh, have a very low digital literacy. I guess, I guess that's that. So what we really need is actually educate uh, the people in Nisha to have a better, uh, better digital knowledge. And of course, there is also a threat from the hacker, uh, hacker sniffer, basically, uh, which is uh, we do in daily basis. But I think uh, the our users that is uh, have a very low digital literacy. That's our biggest problem, I guess. Mm. And then generally looking at the digital economy, the move more towards it, and the sorts of technologies that are available. You've both mentioned some, not just in e-commerce, but you know, the the skills required for the technology behind it, around logistics, around uh, you know manufacturing, around production lines. Do you see significant changes in that area coming up, Alex? Given it, you know someone who deals at the front foot of consumers, you must be thinking about how that's going to affect the back end and, and your suppliers, so to speak. So concerning uh, the supporting part of the uh, uh, digital economy for the logistics, uh, for the et cetera, et cetera, basically they are also evolving uh, right now. So during the pandemic, uh, for example, uh, our logistics have a bit of uh, uh, cocking, I guess. Uh, uh, they kind of lost in translation on what to do, I guess. So during the uh, the early stage of the pandemic, during the January, February, or I guess March, uh, the logistics have a problems to deliver the the goods uh, in uh, on time. But now they're basically uh, preparing uh, better systems. Uh, they right now are able to deliver the the goods uh, as they promise, uh, or even faster. So. It's a common thing that uh, the the logistics says like they will deliver in three days, while in fact they will uh, you will receive your goods in one day. So the logistics uh, could be an example for that. They that they also evolving 
uh, during the this pandemic. And I guess we have to see there is a there is a light in the dark alley. I guess uh, this pandemic actually boosts, actually empowers people to go the digital path. So I guess it's a good thing. I guess. <laughs> It's, it's sort of crystal ball gazing too a bit because so much is changing and there, there's so much we still don't know yet about what that change means. Um, Professor Chan, we are getting a question from the audience about digital developments. Oh, okay, we'll go to this one, sorry. From Radhan Ari Widianto from the LK, LKPP National Public Procurement Agency of Indonesia. What are the trends on online procurement after the pandemic? Hmm, it'll continue. I think you've touched on this a little bit, Alex. So, you know, definite trends. I guess the question is, will that continue and in what way? So we realise that you don't foresee the future, but give us your best guess. Yes. Um, I think the online procurement will continue to grow. However, one of the things that I could see probably change is the way we approach it, you know. In particular, when we're looking at the supply chain concept on the supply chain principle, where we used to have um, a lot of effort or putting a lot of effort on the lean, lean supply chain where we want products coming just in time so we don't need the inventory, for example, so we can cut costs into it, you know. That's probably, we will need to think a bit more. We think about a bit more agile rather than lean approach because after the pandemic, you will see, I think Alex mentioned earlier, you know, about not having stock in hand. For example, you will see even in Australia, we have uh, a lot of um, uh, supermarket running out of toilet paper, if you remember that time, um, Helen. So <laughs> that's kind of, you know, that's because we don't have stock, we don't have inventory. So whatever on the shelf, when it's gone, it's gone, you know. But that's because we use a kind of just-in-time approach and lean process and all of this procurement will come just at, on, at the same time where consumers want it. Well, it was a good practice probably we need to rethink about the approach that we have. Probably we might want to have it a bit more agile and have a bit of stock in the, in the, you know, in the supermarket. So it's not kind of like been running out straight away when, you know, when there is a rush of people buying a particular product. So yes. probably that, yeah. Create, creating their own pantry, so to speak. Their own <laughs> That's correct. Yes, warehouse. absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Alex, post-pandemic, what do you see? So the online procurement thing, mm, we need to separate between the, uh, the private sector and the government sector. So once the private sectors realize there is an online procurement uh, thingy, so yes, uh, Bukalapak also have this uh, program uh, called Buka Pengadaan, which is basically an online procurement, basically for our B2B and B2G wing. The private sector actually will embrace it. They will be very happy about it. They will basically just uh, press a few buttons, uh, type a few things, and voila. The, uh, the goods that they need are being delivered. However, there is a diff very different mindset on the government side. 
So uh, there is no uniformity yet uh, about this uh, online procurement thing. So my experience is uh, there are there are some uh, ministries that are still being afraid on using online procurement uh, because they don't want to be they don't want to be held responsible by the uh, anti uh, anti corruption uh, commission. Uh, this is also the same thing happen uh, in the uh, in the regional uh, uh, government also, and the go the gov from the government side, the online procurement thing is basically they still have a very strong offline uh, basis. Uh, they still have this mindset that offline uh, paperwork are more secure, are more uh, auditable, things like that. So, I, but I understand because uh, they don't want to break any rules. Mm -hmm. But if you want to go agile, as uh, uh, Professor uh, Carolyn said, we basically, uh, the government need to have, very, have a very different mindset uh, right now. Uh, especially during pandemics, and if it's needed, maybe we should uh, change the law. Thanks, Alex. That considered insight. Appreciate that. Uh, I'm, before I ask for wrap-up responses, I'm just going to get a quick response from you both. This may not be your area, and just say if it isn't, but we do have a question from a guest. Any thoughts on how digital developments might improve the delivery of healthcare services? Um, Alex, are you seeing trends around health? I mean, you mentioned medicine, for instance. Yeah. Will it go as far as more delivery of health services online? And then, Caroline, I'll see if you'd like to say something. Yes, definitely. Uh, so during the pandemic, basically, uh, at least in Indonesia, right, uh, the people are scared to go to the hospital, actually. Because let's say if I have a backache and I go to the hospital, I might get uh, infected by the coronavirus, right? So that is the reason why uh, people are uh, kind of afraid uh, to go out to the hospital. So there is a huge uh, download uh, on uh, the e the on the health tech uh, side. There is also true for the edutech uh, side because I see the questions uh, uh, and uh, asking about what will happen with the educational. Uh, edutech and uh, educational in Indonesia. So yes, uh, for educational, uh, for edutech and uh, for the health tech, more and more users are actually uh, go online because simply they are afraid to go to school. They are afraid uh, to, to go to the hospital simply because they are afraid uh, to get infected by the coronavirus. And the next thing is uh, yes. Uh, we also have uh, seen uh, quite an increase on uh, health-related products. I don't, uh, I don't say it's a medicine. So like vitamins, uh, disinfectant, alcohol, uh, we see uh, quite an increase in there. Uh, so I'll leave it in there. Great. Thanks, Alex. That's really helpful comment from you. Um, Caroline Chan, anything to yeah, add? Just a quick one. Um, yes, healthcare is going to be one of the big ones that will be impacted by, you know, with the digital development and after the pandemic, because now we can see that in Australia in particular, I think in Indonesia is the same. There is uh, Allo Health, I believe, 
or something like that, you know, that um, also provide the help over the uh, consultation over the internet. But in Australia, we now quite um, used to have a consultation over the internet during the pandemic of what, six months now, the lockdown. I've mm -hmm. been seeing my doctor twice over the, you know, just even over the phone, over the internet and, um, and make, take measure of my own blood pressure and tell him, and then he just put the prescription to the chemist directly and I will just pick that up from my chemist. So I don't actually go out. So, and that's becoming more and more common, I suppose. But I think, I think in some way, like, you know, buying food from uh, online, I actually quite like it, you know, doing my consultation online too, because I don't have to sit in the doctor appointment and wait, you know, wait to, to be seen. So I think I'm sure you know, there are, uh, of course, for more serious problems, health problems, you know, that you will still need to go to hospital and things like that. So, but I think I can see it will be one of the biggest trend or the biggest growth in term um, to, to stay as well after, even after the pandemic. Great. Thank you. Yes, it is a relief to not have to find the time to go to the doctor's waiting room anymore. That's for sure. Last question to both of you. And um, if you can just keep it brief, it touched, we, we have touched on some of the trends in the digital economy, particularly in online commerce. Where do you see the opportunities for Australia and Indonesia to work together? Now, I know we've mentioned cybersecurity. But, um, you know, I'm thinking Indonesia's entrepreneurial system, there's, there's something we can learn from that. Keen to get your thoughts on that as a, a closing point. Um, Alex, if I can go to you first. Uh, sorry, could you repeat the questions? I... Where can the two countries, where's the opportunity for them to work together on some of these trends that we're seeing in the digital economy? So uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Australia have a very strong B2B uh, business models. So I guess uh, we could start from there. We, the Australian company could start, uh, could start uh, proposing uh, their uh, business models to Indonesian uh, companies and maybe we could uh, do something about that. Uh, and for Bukalapak site, well, we have this Buka Mall, which is basically an official store. Uh, in Bukalapak, so let's say if you are, if you make uh, some uh, goods that wants to be sold in Indonesia, you could uh, basically uh, sold it uh, in Bukama also. And we are basically open to any new opportunities. Uh, so not only on cybersecurity, but basically anything. Well, you you name it: analytics, uh, cybersecurity. Uh, uh, goods, consumer goods, um, electronics, or basically anything, basically any solutions. Ready to learn from the sounds of it. Yeah. Caroline? Yeah, I was going to take it back to my initial, you know, sort of um, kind of say, you know, there are four things, four areas that we, we could definitely, um, you know, work together, learning from each other. One is about having this people and people connection and always put people in the center of the digital transformation, you know, and having, um, having the, um, the setting the right mind toward the digital transformations. And also in the infrastructure building, probably, you know, 
we can have um, you know Australian company or you know working with Indonesian company to build a proper infrastructure, not just in the digital area or digital infrastructure per se, but even in the logistic area. You know, because I know probably Alex will agree with me. You know, one of the complaint of a lot of the e-marketplace or even the merchants, in fact, it's um is the the cost of the logistics. You know, Indonesia is um is a country archipelago country so in almost every um every transportation we need a multimodal transportation okay we can and that has raised the cost significantly so we could work on that infrastructure to increase the you know lpi index for example logistic performance index of indonesia which is you know one of the things that could give incentive as well and um and another thing is working on the people to people side to in be to include all of the uh, vulnerable or less advantaged people, you know, that or disadvantaged people, that we could um, work together and build their um, their living their living of standard better. Exactly like the question that was posed before, improving the inequality. And finally, yes, in the area of governance and regulation, you know, you can't with the global trade and online trading you can no longer just rely on one particular country regulation and law, but you actually cross border. So that's where we can work together, whether in terms of uh, regulation or agreement or memorandum of understanding or things like that, where, that both country can work. Thank you. Thanks, Caroline. And I wish, you know, we could arrange a scheme where a whole bunch of Australian um, SMEs or MSMEs could go to Indonesia and see the energy around the scene and that sort of can do, let's do this attitude. As you say, the three days before, it'll get there. Um, you know, so there's that sort of that young demographic, I guess, which is keen to pick up things and go with them and learn. Uh, uh, that's where we'll leave it. Thank you very, very much for your time. I'd like to thank our two fantastic guest panellists today, Professor Caroline Chan, uh, Professor of Information Systems at RMIT University, and an industry fellow with us here at the Australia Indonesia Centre. As mentioned, she's just about to start working with Indonesian MSMEs on cybersecurity. Um, a program and skills training. And Alex Chandra, Head of Public Policy and Government Relations at PT Bukalapak, a huge e-commerce Indonesian unicorn company, also an Australia Awards alumni. And Alex, thanks so much for your time. I know that you're very busy and we, we appreciate your time here with us today. And thank you for joining us for this In Conversation webinar, for taking the time out. We hope you found it useful and interesting. Uh, I certainly did. We're going to be putting a replay of this online. We'll send you details about that. There'll be a podcast available and, of course, we'll send out some interesting snippets from the conversation today. A reminder that there is a survey at the end. If you could take that, that would be fantastic. It helps us make better webinars. And uh, just to let you know that we'll have a short break and then we've got another in conversation webinar coming up to tie in with the real Oz end festival or launch, which is the fantastic short film festival that the AIC runs where we get short filmmakers from Australia and Indonesia to create um, some pretty powerful pieces. So really looking forward to the launch of that in early October. 
and uh, the maestro of the Real End Festival, Gemma Purdy, who's also with the AIC, will be conducting that conversation. We'll uh, leave it for now. It's a bit of a surprise as to who's going to be on the panel. So look out for those details. And again, thank you to the panellists and to my team for this, uh, for making sure everything worked behind the scenes. And I hope to see you again soon.